Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. Revelation 20 brings us to the messianic kingdom. It brings us to the time when Satan is no longer allowed to run free on this earth. Satan bound in the bottomless pit, sealed in a dark pit for a thousand years. Christ will rule on the earth with perfect, absolutely perfect peace. His kingdom is eternal, but after the first 1,000 years, there will be a final judgment, a final judgment for men and for Satan. This is our subject this morning in Revelation 20. A man by the name of William Nicholson, he was convinced that the end of the times was at hand. So he believed that if he and his family could survive Armageddon, they would need a place to live during the millennium. So he set out to build a house that could survive Armageddon and a thousand years beyond it. So work started in 1938 on building this massive house. And it would take until 1946 to build this home in Alcoa, Tennessee. The architecture was based, I like this part, it was based on the building techniques used in the Roman Empire. Large Blocks of stone were brought in. They were stacked to build the home. Cement was then poured through the stacked stones. And over 4,000 bags of cement were used to build this large stone castle that would stand the test of time. It boasts 3,000 square feet. That includes 14 rooms and a two-car garage. And all of the exterior walls, if you think your walls are thick at home, these walls are 25 inches thick of stone. And all of the interior walls are at least 19 inches. The roof is a solid three feet thick of, of rock and concrete, which weighs an estimated 423 tons. The only wood used in the home was for doors, windows, and trim. Even the floor was built to last. It's more than four feet thick. This is a massive structure. Well, Nicholson's dreams faded in 1950 when his wife died of cancer at age 72. And 15 years later, at age 88, William Nicholson passed away. But his, his fortress is still there. It still stands as a testimony to his misguided preparations for the return of Jesus Christ. And the millennium. Now, to understand the millennium, we need to walk through some scriptures before we work through Revelation 20. After the second coming of Christ, at the end of the tribulation, the first resurrection happens. This is the reference that we saw last week back in verse 6, when the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints who are killed for their faith are resurrected unto life. They will take part in the kingdom of God on earth. Death will have no power over them because they will be in the millennium in their glorified bodies serving Jesus Christ. This is not the church, but we're going to be there too. 
The future messianic kingdom will be governed by the theocratic rule of Christ. And it will be a time of worldwide obedience and allegiance to Christ. Israel will be the most important nation on earth. They will have the full boundaries of their land for the first time ever. Christ will rule and reign from Jerusalem in his temple in all his glory. But there will be a rebellion at the end of the 1,000 years. And if we're going to understand this, we need to understand who is going to be in this 1,000-year reign of Christ. Now, when any believer dies, the immaterial part of their body goes to heaven. And for the point of simplification, I'm using heaven as a metonym for the dwelling place of God with the understanding of the different terms that are used in the Bible for it. Terms like paradise or Abraham's bosom, different terms are used. When Old Testament believers died, they went to heaven and their body was put into the grave. As church-age believers die, they also go to heaven with their body going to the grave. Tribulation believers, both Jews and Gentiles, who die will immediately go to heaven with their body going to the grave. When there are physical bodies, you have to ask yourself a question. You say, well, when are these bodies all going to be resurrected? When are all these bodies going to be resurrected? When do these people get new bodies? Well, this is where all the differences come in. So you got to track this carefully in Scripture. As we have established from Daniel 12, 3 and Isaiah 26, verses 19 through 21, they will be, the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4 teaches us that the resurrection for church-age believers will take place at the rapture of the church, demonstrating the unique nature of the church in God's plan. Tribulation believers who die will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ. But here's a question. Who's going to be in the millennium? Who's going to be in the millennium? And the first part of the answer is that the citizens of this future kingdom will include all believers with glorified bodies who have died before the second coming of Jesus Christ. All of these groups of believers, Old Testament saints, church-age saints, and tribulation saints who died for their faith will all take part in the millennium in their glorified bodies. And here is the wonderful promise of Scripture. Every believer living in glorified bodies will never again experience physical death. Praise God. That is why verse 6 in Revelation 20 says, over such the second death has what? No power. But what about those? Here comes another question. What about those who enter into the first thousand years of the reign of Christ without glorified bodies? That gets interesting. See, not everyone who enters into the kingdom on earth is going to have glorified bodies. There will be people with earthly bodies in the millennium, both Jewish and Gentile believers. Saved after the rapture of the church and who survived the tribulation, they will enter into the kingdom in their earthly physical bodies. And because of this, procreation happens. Some of you who are married understand that concept. Procreation happens, okay? And it will result in children who are born in sin. Some of you who are parents understand that concept very well. It results in children born in sin. Can I get an amen? 
These children, they will still individually need to receive Christ as their savior in the millennium, but not all will. It will result in a large population of unbelievers at the end of the millennium. Now, here's what I find so interesting. Hear me carefully. Believers who enter into the millennium in physical bodies will still be preserved from death. That's amazing. Believers who enter into the millennium in physical bodies will still be preserved from death. People with faith going into the kingdom of of Christ on earth, even though they will not have their glorified bodies to start out with, they will be preserved from death. Now, we know this because of Isaiah 65. I don't have the time to walk you through it this morning, but Isaiah 65 teaches that death in the millennium will always be punitive, punitive for those sins that are worthy of capital punishment. Since death will only affect sinners, then the question becomes, who can sin in the millennium? That becomes the question. Who can sin in the millennium? Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 teach that when the new covenant is in force, believers will not be able to sin. And so therefore, the only conclusion that we can make from the word of God is that believers will not die because why? They will not sin. This is why so long ago, and here's where we're going to start connecting some dots. This is why so long ago, God told the people of Israel an amazing thing. Before they were even in the promised land, before they even got there, in Deuteronomy 30, it says, Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. A lot in this passage. Notice this theme. The people returning to God with all their hearts, minds, and souls scattered among the nations, driven there by who? Driven there by God. To be regathered by God. Verse 3 that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. And then we read some amazing things down starting in verse 5. It says, Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise what? Your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. See, before Israel even went into the promised land, God told them the day would come when he would bring them back. The day would come when they would possess the land. Now let's ask this question. Has Israel ever received the full boundaries of her land? Ever, ever? No, not even close. What we have over there is not Israel in the full boundaries of their land. So when is this going to happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ? When the land covenant of Genesis 15 is fulfilled. Genesis 15, 18 specifically says this. 
On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, land covenant, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. That's the boundary of the land of Israel right there. He's setting down the marker right there in the word of God all the way back in Genesis 15. Do you realize what that boundary looks like? It's kind of huge. That is what it looks like. It includes Syria. It includes Lebanon. It includes Jordan. It includes part of Iraq, part of Saudi Arabia, all the way down to Egypt. It's never been fulfilled. Israel's never had all of their land, but it will be fulfilled perfectly at the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy 30, God said... He will regather his people from among the nations. He will give them the land. He will give them a king of the line of David, Jesus Christ. That's the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7.16, where David was told this by God. David was told, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your thrones shall be established forever. How long would the Davidic kingdom last? Forever. Forever, we're establishing basic principles. They will have land. There will be a king of kings and there will be the people. Back to Deuteronomy 30. Notice the other part of this. God told the people of Israel the Lord would circumcise their hearts to love the Lord, their God, with all their heart and soul that they may live. In order to have perfect obedience to Christ, do you have perfect obedience to Christ? you do, you're doing something better than me. In order to have perfect obedience to Christ, something needs to happen. The people will need to receive a new heart, which is part of the new covenant of God promised in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Let's read Jeremiah 31 and we'll start in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day that I took them, by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord." I want you to notice a lot in this passage. I want you to notice that the new covenant is with the nation of Israel. This covenant is not with the church. We benefit from it. We are blessed by it. Absolutely. But this covenant is with who? Israel. Israel, Israel, Israel. And it's not according to the old covenant. What's the old covenant? The Mosaic covenant. No, that's huge. That's important. The Mosaic covenant, you need to understand this if you want to understand the Old Testament. The Mosaic covenant was never intended to be a covenant that taught people how to be saved by doing works, by doing rules, by following these worship sacrifices. It was about fellowship with God for the nation of Israel. How the nation, the people, were to get along with one another and how they were to worship their God and have fellowship with their God. So let me ask you, when the tribulation is over, Israel is back in the full boundaries of her land. She's going to need a new covenant. She will need a new covenant as a nation that will teach her as a nation how to have fellowship with God once again. And this takes us to verse 33 in Jeremiah 31, 
where it says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Watch these words. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. There is no way the church is experiencing the full effects of the new covenant now. There's no way. We don't walk in perfect obedience unless you guys have a secret you're not telling me about. There's something I don't know unless you're doing better than me. Speaking of this covenant with Israel... Ezekiel 36 says this. It says, I will give you a new heart. Again, still talking about the new covenant and put a new spirit within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and you will keep my judgments and do them. This will be a change in the role of the ministry of the spirit of God. This will be an absolute change in the role of the ministry of the Spirit of God. During the church age, the Spirit of God does not cause believers to directly obey Jesus Christ. So today, what happens? We can quench the Spirit of God. We can disobey the Spirit of God. We can disobey God all day long. Because if He did cause us to obey all the time, if God caused that, we would all be living in perfect obedience to Christ. But during the millennium believers, they, even in their physical earthly bodies, they will not be able to sin. There will be a change in the ministry of the Spirit of God. Now, the new covenant will do what the Mosaic covenant could never do. Bring the people of Israel to perfect obedience. Jesus, if you remember from the Gospels, he referred to this new covenant in the upper room, telling the disciples that his shed blood was the blood of the new covenant. Christ himself is the mediator of the new covenant. This covenant was ratified at the death of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 that the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God is similar to what Israel will have under the new covenant. But that does not mean the new covenant is in force now. Today, that day is coming when Israel is going to have the land, the Davidic king. The new covenant will be in force. The people will live in perfect obedience to Jesus Christ. And out of all of this, this was promised to Abraham so long ago when? All the way back in Genesis 12, when God told him this. He said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's what I want you to understand. Here's where we're driving. The land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant are all a part of the Abrahamic covenant for the nation of Israel. And when the new covenant is in force, believers will not be able to sin, even those in physical bodies. And if you study out the Bible on this, it tells us only unbelievers will be able to sin. The curse of sin will be removed from God's people. There will be divine protection of life for them. 
The blessings of the new covenant in the ministry of the Spirit of God will keep them from sin and keep them from death. Because remember, in the millennium, there isn't even going to be accidental death. There won't even be accidental death in the millennium. God will protect people from it. Death during the millennium, as we established before, will always be punitive for those sins that are worthy of capital punishment committed by unbelievers. Now, eventually, we know that the millennium believers will be translated from life on earth to life in the new heavens and new earth. And it seems consistent with Scripture that they will get their new bodies at the end of the millennium. But here's what we know for sure. These kingdom believers will be spirit-filled, living righteous lives in justice and in peace. Jeremiah 31 says they're going to be living with joy and prosper in all that they do. Isaiah 65 says that they will have good health and live long lives. There will be one language in that day. There will be no wars. There will be universal worship of Jesus Christ. But over time, the number of unbelievers is going to grow. And then Satan... Satan is going to be released one final time. And he will know. He will know exactly what he wants to try to do. He will have 1,000 years to plot his revenge. So let's go to Revelation 20 and see what he does. Let's pick it up with verse 7. It says in Revelation 20, Now when the 1,000 years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Satan and his fallen angels will face a final judgment. At Calvary, Satan's judgment was sealed. He was already defeated. This was the mortal blow that was predicted back in Genesis 3.15. But just because he's defeated does not mean that he is done creating chaos in this world. You may have noticed. Imagine a missionary who arrives back at his hut only to find this enormous python that had made, made its way into his home. And not knowing what else to do, not knowing what else to do. They don't train you for this stuff in Bible college. They don't tell you exactly what you're supposed to do when there's a gigantic snake in your hut. Didn't have that class. I had a lot of classes, not that one. The missionary shoots the snake in the head, and he's hoping to kill it. Immediately after the fatal gunshot, the python begins to just thrash around. And the missionary steps out of the hut and watches as all the walls of this little hut are shaking. And he continues to hear the noise of this massive creature banging into things all over his home, just smashing things, making a mess. Eventually, after a little bit of time, there's no more noise coming from within that hut. So he walks into the hut to see everything in shambles from the thrashing of the snake. But the python is no longer a danger to him. And it provides us with a picture of what happened to Satan at Calvary. See, Christ has already issued the fatal blow to Satan at the cross. It's already done. But throughout the entire church age, Satan is just thrashing around as the prince of this world, trying to take as many people with him as he can to his ultimate judgment. And at some point, Satan will be done deceiving the nations of the world. 
He'll no longer be a danger because he will be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Defeated at Calvary, unable to deceive the nations for a thousand years, he'll have one last stand. This is his last rebellion and final judgment. Referred to here as the Battle of Gog and Magog. Now here's where we're going back to theology again. Here's where we got to get a little deep again. Scripture speaks of two battles of Gog and Magog. There's one in the Old Testament, one in Revelation. This is, in Revelation, the second battle after the millennium. The first one, I really believe from Scripture, is right after the rapture of the church. It is the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, if you look at these two battles, the context is completely different. They are completely different battles. The timing is different. The details are different. The second one in Revelation is after the millennium. Now, let's go back to Ezekiel for a second. Ezekiel, he predicts armies coming down from the north, from the land of Magog. Now, where is Magog? Well, Magog was a descendant of Noah in Genesis 10. All you got to do is open your Bible to Genesis 10 and you see Magog. He's a descendant of Noah. And his land was to the north by the Black and Caspian Seas. Ezekiel predicts a ruler will come out of that land, either titled or named Gog after the rapture, but before the tribulation, to lead a northern alliance against Israel. But here in Revelation, this is a different battle. So ignore the Ezekiel stuff, okay? This is a different battle. This is a totally different battle. At the end of the millennium, that will come from all the nations, from the four corners, not just from the north, from the four corners of the earth. And the number of those who rebel against God at this final rebellion will be numbered as the sand of the sea. Led by Satan, they're going to come from all directions. On the breadth of the earth, the scripture says, and encircle the camp of the saints, the beloved city, the beloved city of Jerusalem. Now Christ is going to be sovereignly sitting there on his throne, permitting this army to gather. It saves him some work later. Why do I say that? Well, just as I would love it if all the spiders and all the ants in my yard kind of got gathered together in one spot so I could just rain down some fire on them, I would love that. Absolutely. That's kind of what Christ is doing here. Right as Satan is, is thinking he's got this and he's about to implement his final plan at the end of the millennium, fire is going to come down from heaven and devour the enemies of Christ. Why? Some of you might be wondering why there must be this final battle with Satan. I mean, why is this here? Why does it matter? But to ask this question, and I want you to put your thinking cap on, to ask this question is to ask why there must even be this millennial aspect of the eternal kingdom. Why do we got to go through this? Why do we have to have a thousand year reign of Christ and then this rebellion? In other words, at the second coming of Christ, why don't we just get it over with? Why, why don't we just get this done? and have the eternal kingdom at the second coming of Christ in its full glory without this rebellion. Why allow Satan to be loosed after a thousand years after he's confined? And the answer rests in the sovereign plan of God, the millennium and the 
final rebellion of Satan demonstrates that even under ideal circumstances, even under ideal circumstances, when outward conformity to the law will be mandated by the presence of the king ruling with a rod of iron, the heart of unregenerate man is desperately wicked. And those unbelievers that rebel against God are going to be without excuse. They'll have no excuse. The millennium will provide one final test for mankind, one final manifestation of God's grace. See, the purpose of the millennium, the purpose of this thousand-year reign of Christ on the old earth is to demonstrate the utter depravity of man because many people are going to choose to reject Christ. It's not as though they're going to be asked to trust in someone who lived 2,000 years ago that they've never seen. Think of what we saw in Jeremiah 31. It said that they will all know of him from the least to the greatest. In Isaiah 11, 9, it tells us, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, even under the most ideal Conditions with the glory of the Lord filling the earth with no injustice in the world, people are still going to reject Jesus Christ. This is the final stand of Satan. Men will not have known the art of war for a thousand years. They will not have known even what war looks like. But they learn quick. And so what happens? Verse 10 says, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil is going to be cast into the lake of fire. He will join the beast and the false prophet who have been there since the second coming of Jesus Christ 1,000 years before. They will be tormented day and night without end. The text says forever and ever, literally to the end of ages, it says. See, there's no way possible in the Greek language to state more emphatically their everlasting punishment. It is the destiny of all who follow Satan. Listen to what Time Magazine said. This is old school now. This is Time Magazine in December of 1999. And this is what they said about Jesus. This shows you how much things have changed in our country in the last 20-some years. Back then, in 1999, Time Magazine said, it would require much exotic calculation to deny that the single most powerful figure, not merely in these two millenniums, but in all of human history, has been Jesus of Nazareth. They go on. A serious argument can be made that no one else's life has proved remotely as powerful and enduring as that of Jesus. Time Magazine got it right for once. They got it right. The Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. The New Testament points to Christ. All of history points to Christ. Church history for the last 2,000 years points to Christ. The millennial reign will point to Christ. It's all about Christ ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. And then the end comes, verse 11 in Revelation. Where it says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works by the things which were written in the books. Now before the eternal state, the old heavens and old earth will be melted away by fire. 
Now, Christ predicted this. He predicted this all along. If you remember from the New Testament, in Matthew 24, 35, when he said this, he said, heaven and earth will pass away. He warned people, but my words, he said, will by no means pass away. Christ taught it in Matthew 24, and then in, in Matthew 5, 18, he taught that the heaven and earth will pass away. And this teaching is echoed throughout the New Testament. 2 Peter 3, 7, it says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And again in 2 Peter with verse 10, watch this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Makes no sense to live for today in this world, does it? Goes on. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, the old heavens and earth will be removed before the new heavens and new earth are put into place by God. Now, this teaching impacts our understanding and role as stewards of God's creation. The curse of sin affects the entire globe, the soil, the weather, the plants. You see, this earth is falling apart. Why? Because of the curse of sin. So don't worship the earth, worship the creator. The world will end when God wants it to end. But why do the old heavens and earth need to be destroyed? Well, because the Bible tells us that the presence of sin in the universe and the residual effects of the curse on creation means that this earth cannot be renovated enough to make it meet God's standards of righteousness for the eternal state. He can't renovate it enough. It must be completely destroyed and recreated, which takes us to the purposes of God in human history. See, the ultimate plan of God is not just what he's doing in your life. God's got a bigger plan than that. I'm sorry, you're not the center of the universe. I know that bursts your bubble, but you're not. The ultimate plan of God is to bring himself glory. And he will do this by more than just his work in man. He's got a bigger plan. He will do this by redeeming the church. He will do this by redeeming Israel and all of creation. The new heavens, the new earth are all a part of the final pieces of the plan. Now this takes us back to our text in Revelation Verse 11 is telling us about the great white throne judgment where the lost of all the ages will be lined up and they will meet their final judgment before the creator. This is God seated on his throne. The throne I want you to notice in the text is not on earth and it's not in the heaven. John tells us God is so powerful that the earth and the heaven fled away. John sees the small and great standing before God awaiting judgment. Now, these are not believers, so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not going to be there. If you're a child of God by faith, you will not be a part of this judgment. It's not possible. There they will stand before God, awaiting to be sentenced. It's a horrible place to be. It's a horrible, horrible thing. Their judgment is on the basis of the books that are open. The book of life is the role of those who are saved and have eternal life. 
These souls will not have their names found in it because they were not reconciled to God by faith. Now, hear me carefully. This book of life, it's not there for God to check to see if your name is in it like he's Santa Claus. That's not what's happening. This book is there to show that they're not in it. It's there to show that they're not in it. The dead are judged on the basis of their works, not, hear this carefully, judged not to determine whether or not they have eternal life. They don't have it if they're in this line. They don't have it. But rather, their works are shown to show that no matter how well they lived, their works never measured up to the righteous standards of a holy and perfect God in heaven. People of all the ages have died thinking that their works are enough for eternal life. They're not. Don't kid yourself. They're not. On this day, they will learn that by their works, they could not be justified before God. Their works are the basis for the judgment of the degrees of punishment that they will face for all eternity. See, here's a disturbing teaching. Matthew 11 actually teaches us that there are degrees of punishment in hell. Scary thought. Each lost sinner will receive what is due. None are going to be able to argue. You're not going to argue with God. These books are intended to show us that God does not forget the deeds of the unregenerate man. Every thought, every deed, every wicked lust of the heart is recorded and noted by a holy God in heaven. He will judge with perfect justice. Men like Alexander the Great will be there. Hitler, Stalin, Mao, they're all going to be lined up. They're going to be there. Men who doubled down on their wickedness. Men who went in for wickedness on a grand scale with the world as their stage. And then they died in their unbelief. There will be no rewards given at this judgment. Notice the text says nothing about rewards at all. Only punishment forever and ever. All the unsaved who die, even those in the millennium, are part of this judgment. So we read in our last three verses. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Verse 12 answers the age-old question of what happens to someone who dies out at the sea. It shows us that no matter what happens to their bodies at sea, God is still more than able to raise their bodies. God will raise them up so they can stand in judgment before him and go into everlasting punishment in the lake of fire. Those who died and went to Hades, not hell. The King James mistranslates here. It should be Hades. Hades is a place the unbelieving dead go until their judgment before God at the great white throne. This place is referred to as Sheol in the Old Testament. Hades and Sheol never, never refer to the eternal state of punishment. They never do. It's not the eternal state of punishment. Hell is the eternal state of punishment. Hell is the lake of fire in Scripture. Also referred to as Gehenna, especially by Christ in the Gospels. Gehenna. You see, if a person's arrested for a crime, you go to a temporary place of holding. That is very much like the place that you're going to be punished at the time of your trial. 
In the valley, I hear you go to the Matsu pretrial facility. I've never been there. That's good for me. But once you're tried and found guilty, once you're tried and found guilty, then you're sent to a long-term place of punishment. And so in verse 13 here, where it says death and Hades delivered up the dead, Hades, the temporary place for unbelievers, they give up their dead. Death is included in this. Why? Because as the dead of Hades are raised, given eternal bodies to face judgment and eternal torment, Hades has given up its dead. Death is a reference here to the state of the dead. Hades is a reference to the place of the dead. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Then verse 14 in Revelation. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, telling us that every person in the intermediate state in Hades are found unworthy and are cast into the lake of fire. See, the lake of fire is simply God's permanent prison for the eternally lost. Once you go in, you'll never come out. It's a one-way door. It is not soul sleep, so get that out of your head. The unbelieving souls will be given a specific body for this that is different than the body given to the saints of God. These bodies of the lost will be indestructible. They will last forever so they can be tormented and punished forever but they will still be given to sin in the lake of fire. They will live through every painful moment of torment, never to end. And scripture refers to it as the second death. Every believer of every age has already been reconciled to God at this point, And now the spiritually dead will meet the second death. And if their names are not in the book of life, they'll be cast into the lake of fire in bodies designed for their eternal torment apart from God. Because the great white throne judgment will be nothing, nothing like a modern court case. Get that image out of your head. At this judgment, there will be a judge, but no jury. A prosecution, but there will be no defense. And a sentence, but there will be no appeal. And if you understand anything from this lesson this morning, it had better make you appreciate the grace of God at work in your life. And it had better give you a focus a passion for being an ambassador for Jesus Christ with the gospel, sharing the gospel seed far and wide with a dying and lost world. Stephen Anderson, a professor in Ontario, Canada, he had what he called a, a moment of startling clarity while teaching a section on ethics in his senior philosophy class. He needed a, an attention getter. Something to shock his students, something to wake him up and get him to take notice and force them to wake up in life and take an ethical stand. He hoped if he shocked them with the horrors of evil, that this would form a baseline for this class, that they could have some discussions about ethics and principles. So he decided to open up by showing a, a photo of Bibi Aisha. Now, he didn't say anything. He just showed her picture. Bibi, if you know the story, she was the Afghani teenager who was forced into an abusive marriage with a Taliban fighter who abused her and kept her with his animals. And when she attempted to flee, her family caught her, and hacked off her nose and her ears, and then left her for dead in the mountains. Just left her for dead. She was saved by a nearby American hospital. Anderson said that he felt quite sure that his students seeing the suffering of this poor girl would bring a strong reaction because this girl was about their age. 
You thought surely looking at her beautiful eyes, staring back at you from above that hole that was once her nose would, would bring about a reaction. Some of his students couldn't even look up at the screen to look at it, but Anderson said he was not prepared for their reactions. Instead of being angered by this, instead of condemning these horrific actions, these students were confused. They were confused. They seemed to not know what to think. They were timid in their speech, afraid to make any moral judgment and stand at all. They were unwilling to criticize any situation that came from a different culture. And some of their responses were this. Well, we might not like it, but maybe over there, it's okay. Another said, it's just wrong to judge other cultures. Anderson then concluded and said this, no matter how I prodded, they did not leave their non-judgmental position. He said, I left that class shaking my head. It seemed clear to me that for some students, the lesson of character education initiatives is the acceptance of all things at all costs. And for them, the overriding message is never judge, never criticize, never take a stand, never take a position. That's a weak, need, sick approach to right and wrong, and that's an evil in of itself. I can't stand it. If you take God out of the schools, and if you take the word of God out of the churches, what do you expect? That's what you get. People reject the doctrine of hell, even those who profess the name of Christ, because there's a sentimental version of the Christian faith being taught that will not face the reality of judgment, but teaches instead that God loves everyone into heaven and sends no one to hell. But the biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, loving, great creator. He's wise, and he hates anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation. See, if God does not hate rape, mutilation, or murder, then God is not good, he's not loving. If God is not angry at child abuse, he's neither good or loving. And if God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation the arrogance that allows people to exploit and enslave one another, he's neither loving nor good nor wise. Christians need to understand that there is pure evil present in this world. It's all around us. It's in this world. It's here now. And it's not to be played around with. Saddens me when I see Christians playing around with it. It's not to be accepted or placated. Call it what it is. It's evil. The word of God's the standard. Christians are expected to stand for God's purity and holiness. Hell is a witness to the righteous character of God. He must judge sin. God does not send people to hell. They send themselves because they reject the Savior. Hell is a witness to the vile nature of sin. It's what it is. It's a big testimony to the vile nature of man's sin. And once we start to see sin as God sees it, then we understand why hell exists in the first place. Satan is still thrashing around like a dying snake. But don't let him devour you, Christian. Don't let him lead you astray in your faith. Stay alert. Pray for the Christians that are suffering because they are suffering around the globe even now. Even now. And then live your life unashamed for Jesus Christ, knowing that just as God is preparing an eternal place for Satan, he has an even better one prepared for you, for those of faith. So trust him, rest in him, and then live for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.